Friends, once again, my name is Mitchell Boone, and I am the senior pastor here at White Rock. Um, if you're a guest, we're delighted that you found us. I've been on paternity leave for the past several weeks, and it has been such a gift that the staff uh, has given me, that the leadership team has given me, that you all have given me to spend this time away from the daily work of the church and be able to be at home with our new son, Declan. Um, it has been a, a really amazing time, and I, I am really grateful. I'm also, I'm jumping at the bit to get back. I'm excited about where we are and uh, where we're headed uh, through this Lenten journey and into the spring. Um, I am, I, I'll admit, a bit dumbfounded why I picked this text as one uh, to return to. Uh, Phil, was that, was that your idea? Sorry, yeah, I, I blame Phil. Uh, Today's text is found in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the 14th chapter. As you know, we're in a series entitled More Than Just a Day, where we're looking at the last 24 hours or so of Jesus's life and really mining that and gleaning from the text to, to see what Jesus's last day on earth um, with his disciples means for us as followers of Christ and how we as a people of faith um, can kind of enter into this story. And so uh, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, the 14th chapter, and I'll be reading verses 43 through 50. Immediately, actually in verse 42, Jesus tells his disciples uh, that the one who is about to betray him is at hand and verse 43 picks up, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near, some uh, other gospels refer to this person as Peter, drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all of them, all of them deserted him and fled. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. You are the one that we abandon. Help us to find your grace and love even in the midst of our own weakness. Amen. Now, I will admit there are several things that make me feel helpless, like making 
puff pastries or trying to clean my gutters or really doing anything auto-related, trying to replace even the simplest things like a headlight, but nothing, and I'm serious here, nothing makes me feel more helpless than parenting a three-year-old who has decided not to take a nap. And in fact, this is not just a one-off occurrence. Cash's refusal to nap during the day has been a ongoing theme for the past several months, which has really created this polarizing, um, jarring moments at unpredictable times. Uh, Like the other night, uh, I was uh, (laughs) sitting in our bedroom folding some laundry, and Eli was putting Cash down for bed, and somehow Cash was upset. I don't know if it was the wrong bath towel or too little or too much toothpaste, but something had set him off, and he was simultaneously crying and laughing all at the same time. And I really have no idea how he was accomplishing this feat. And I was trying not to giggle and let him know that I was listening in on the eternal struggle that Eli and Cash were having. And, and the truth is, if you know Cash, like he's an awesome kid. He's super sweet. He's funny. He's sincere. At times, he's so curious that it's almost annoying Like 95% of the time, cash is a joy to be around. It's just the unpredictability of that 5%, right? Like, that's the difficult thing. And the only thing that is predictable when he is in this mood is that if I build something, whether it be a block tower or a mega track for his Brio trains or a construction site out of couch pillows, It really doesn't matter. If I build something at his request, he will, at some point, completely and utterly destroy it all. Like an antique kind of jack-in-the-box vibe, right? At some point, Cash will pop out of nowhere and jingle whatever creation I've been working on all over the living room. And even though I know it is going to happen, even though I've been taught and reminded that this is the fatal end of my creation, it still is both disappointing and shocking when cash pops up and destroys everything that I've been working on. And in some ways, this is the case for our text today, right? We know this story of Judas, right? We know it. We know that Judas is a punk, that he is going to betray Jesus. I mean, even the author of Mark goes out of his way to give us a heads up. Judas is introduced, right, to the readers by getting the betrayer title early on in the Gospel of Mark. All the way at the back, at the beginning, back in chapter three, Mark says this, right? Jesus appointed the 12, right? Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Sons of Thunder, which happens to be the best given name in the entire Bible, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, and Thaddeus, and Simon, and Judas Iscariot, the worst disciple out of the bunch. Seriously, he is the worst. Keep reading because he betrayed Jesus. That's the right translation, right, Phil? Right? 
In fact, Jesus in verse 42 even gives us a heads up, right? Hey, disciples, wake up. Look, my betrayer is at hand. And still, there is something about this text, something that exposes our humanity that just is so devastating when we read in this meditative state. I want to remind you, right, that the reading of Scripture, right, and how we engage with Scripture is not all equal, right? When we read Scripture for study, we do so to stimulate the mind and develop better theology, right? When we read Scripture or hear Scripture proclaimed and preaching, we do so to invoke the Spirit. But Scripture as prayer and meditation demands from us this vulnerability, right? And when we read this text in that prayer and meditative space, we recognize, right, that this portion of Mark's story is indeed devastating because it is at this moment, this moment of Judas's betrayal, that the discipleship narrative completely collapses. And it not only just crumbles, but it is intentionally demolished like a divine tower of blocks scattered upon the garden. Even Jesus' most faithful disciples abandon him. We are left wondering why. And we ask those questions like, how could they do something like that? Or why did those disciples lack such faith? We pretend to be so interested in that question, like, how could they get away with it? Or why would they do that to Jesus? We ask these questions and make accusations of the, sleep, of the sleepy disciples. And yet, deep down, we know why. The truth is we are as guilty and fickle and cunning as, G- as Judas and his brothers. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't blame them. Because in some ways, it is the most logical response. Don't we, like Judas, demand more from God? Don't we expect better of our Creator? Haven't we too placed our faith in the Son of Man only to find ourselves still facing the pain we hoped would be? we were, would be able to escape, still facing the suffering we long to be free of? If anything could justify this feeling of disappointment, right, it would be the events of this past year. And Jesus, when presented with really the best option on the table, even squashes that by reminding his disciples that they are to put away their swords, which indeed haunts us, I think, all, because we are quick to pick up our swords of varying shapes and sizes all too quickly. We don't know what truly motivated Judas, and given other accounts of his pathetic attempts to give the money back, we do probably know that it was not greed 
More likely, Judas, like many of us, had found a blistering disappointment in God. Judas was so disappointed beyond saving, disappointed that the Son of Man, his rabbi, his teacher, his friend, right, his best understanding of God in the world would do nothing more than just suffer. Watching Jesus passively stand by in his ministry literally vanish into thin air before any real tangible deliverance for Israel. It was all too much for Judas. And like a betrayed spouse or partner, Judas lashed out. Rage, disappointment, humiliation, whatever it was, it boiled over. And a relationship that was born out of such high hopes is shattered by weakness and the human condition. And when we read this text in that meditative space, it kind of spills out all over the verses. To fully, though, appreciate, I think, the gravity of what we read in Mark 14, we need to remove Judas from whatever spiritual jail cell or solitary confinement we've placed him in and free him up so he finds us in the reflection of ourselves. Because this isn't really about obeying or disobeying, regardless of how we hope this story unfolds. It's not about right or wrong as much as we want it to be about rule following. It just isn't about that. This text is really all about Jesus and how his vision of reality simply doesn't make sense. It's so foreign, so other. We do what we always do. We try to kill that which we don't understand. Jesus calls blessed, what Jesus calls blessedness, we call failure. What Jesus calls sacrifice, we call being a sucker. What Jesus demands in the face of violence, we say that is weakness. And what Jesus is apparently labeling victory, we see as utter foolishness. And it's here, when I can admit this to myself, that I really get caught up in this story because what I can't really wrap my head around is why didn't Judas just leave? Why didn't he just return to the Galilee and like peace out from the whole endeavor? Why did he need to enter into the last hours of Jesus's life? Why was Judas's betrayal even necessary for our story? And as I've meditated on that this week, I've, I've come to this realization that, that in, some we, re, in some ways, Judas had no choice. And I don't mean like in the predestined type of way that Scripture kind of leads us to believe. I mean like no choice in that once you come face to face with Christ, once you have that deep encounter with Jesus, we are offered a choice a choice that we must make. And it's simply a yes or a no. Judas just gives us an emphatic no with a receipt and a kiss. 
The triune God, though, right, receives many kisses still from us today. We worship, we theologize, we join churches, we take the responsible position on matters of national and international concern. We vote the right way. We are indeed good neighbors. We strive to be good co-workers. We see ourselves as good parents. We can't, though, help but quietly kiss Jesus in the shroud of darkness while abandoning him in broad daylight when his audacity would overturn our neatly ordered lives. Judas, in some regards, is simply a casualty in the collision between God and humanity. Because the truth is, Judas followed Jesus as far as he could. And then he fell short. And Judas was not alone in his failure, right? Even Peter, the rock, right, fails Jesus, as we will see and preach about in just a few weeks. And yet Judas is so honest and his treachery so deliberate compared to Peter's spontaneous act of cowardice. It makes Judas so off-putting, and, Jesus and Peter's momentary weakness seems so forgivable. Of course, I see my own failure, like Peter, right? When I fail to take up the cross, it is in some ways like Peter's denial, or so I like to think. Most of my failure is being so overwhelmed by the difficulty ahead, the task at hand, that I freeze, I recoil. My spirit is willing, I say, but my flesh, right, is so weak. And yet, if I do this day after day, year after year, the personal aversion, right, somewhere along the way becomes a deliberate act to grab the world's gold idols and offer Christ the same empty kiss. And so my questions about Judas aren't so much how could he or why did he, but rather they're more honest and introspective. Did Judas find peace after he betrayed Jesus? Did he find grace? Asking for a friend, right? So much of Judas is a typical anti-hero character we see Netflix make millions and millions of dollars on, right? It's so easy to see the Walter White downward spiral in the midst of Judas's actions. We don't know why he or how he justified what he did, but there is little doubt that he was indeed breaking bad and he left a wake of destruction in his path. And yet... The question I still am asking is, does Judas deserve grace? Did he find it? Sometimes when I'm picking up the blocks after Cash has entered the room in the living room, quietly uttering those bathroom words that aren't appropriate for young ears, like fishing Legos out of soup bowls or breaking my back, right, trying to reach that block that's next to the roach traps, I wonder... I wonder if Cash will ever get it. Will Cash ever learn to appreciate it? The block towers that I build him with creativity, right? 
These towers that were built out of a love a parent has for a child. These moments where I stop everything to build what he will ultimately knock down simply to bring him joy. I wonder if Judas, because of his impulsivity, laying in his own pile of blocks in the mess he just created, could really then see it. Did he ever appreciate it? What Jesus was tasked with building, did he really come to understand that it was a gift he was given to be able to participate in that building? I wonder if we get it. In the brokenness of it all, do we find a glimmer of the audacious, reckless, and foolish love of God? Do we really get it? Here's the good news, friends. The good news is God's block building cannot be stopped. And the reign of God, the creative and deep faithfulness of God, does not need our understanding or even our admiration. Even when God can't be understood, even when God is betrayed, even when God is abandoned, God is still building. Hallelujah. Amen.